welcome to One Life Online. The podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a Christmas message presented by Nathan Montgomery. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. And we're going to start this morning by opening God's Word. We're going to read the Christmas story once again. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn with me. I thought I had all the verses lined up for a PowerPoint this morning, but then my flash drive failed, so my apologies. If you have God's Word, turn with me. We're going to start in Luke 1. We're going to go from verse 26 to 56, and then we'll skip over to Luke chapter 2 and finish the story. All right, and this is God's Word. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by his words and began to wonder about the meaning of this greeting. So the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And look, your relative Elizabeth has also become pregnant with a son in her old age. Although she was called barren, she is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary said, Yes, I am a servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. In those days Mary got up and went hurriedly into the hill country to a town of Judah, and entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child in your womb. And who am I that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? For the instant the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that what was spoken to her by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has begun to rejoice in God my Savior, because he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. For from now on all generations will call me blessed, because he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. From generation to generation he is merciful to those who fear him. He has demonstrated power with his arm. He has scattered those whose pride wells up 
from the sheer arrogance of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has lifted up those of lowly position. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. All right, now we'll skip over to Luke chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. We'll go to verse 20. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David. He went to be registered with Mary who was promised in marriage to him and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now there were shepherds nearby, <clears throat> living out in the field, keeping guard over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were absolutely terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. Listen carefully, for I proclaim to you good news that brings great joy to all the people. Today your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a vast heavenly army appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. When the angels left them and went back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, that the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and located Mary and Joseph and found the baby lying in a manger. When they saw him, they related what they had been told about this child. All who heard it were astonished at what the shepherds said. But Mary treasured up all these words, pondering them in her heart as to what they might mean. So the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything was just as they had been told. All right, to start off, I want to ask any kids who are willing to come on up to the front. I have some questions to ask. Any, any willing kids brave enough to come up and answer a few simple, easy questions? Come on, I'll come to you. No, no takers? Come on, all of you. Here, maybe this will help. <laughs> Ooh, what do I got here? <laughs> Nothing like bribery, eh? Oh, here, I'll even open up and show you here. Oh, now they're coming. Look at them. Ooh, look at those. Oh, not yet, not yet. 
All right, well, thanks for coming. Thanks for being so brave. I appreciate it. I felt like I was going to be all alone there for a second. All right, so I have just a simple, first simple question for you. I want to know from you guys who you think is important. Yes, any answers? Yep. God. God's important, absolutely. Any other? Who else? Yep. Jesus. Jesus is important, okay. Is mom and dad important? Are they important? Okay, who else? Who else is important? Who can you think of that's important? Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, yep. Any people? My family. Your family's important, very good. Who else, who else is important? Who else does an important job? Anybody? Mm -hmm. My teacher. Your teachers are important, good job. Anybody else? Mm -hmm. Kings. Kings are important, yes. Queens. And queens as well. Mm -hmm. Keep them coming. That's doctors. Good. Hmm? Doctors. Doctors are important. Good one. I didn't think of that one. Who else is important? Lots of people. Emperors. Emperors. Ooh, are they more important or less important than a king? I don't know. Anyone else? Police. Are they important? Yeah, okay. Who else? Um, presidents. Are presidents important? Okay. What about... Who else is important? Are singers important? What about a YouTuber? Are YouTubers important? No? Okay, all right. <laughs> it's hard to tell these days who's important. All right, so now my next question for you guys. Think a little harder. What makes these people important? Mm -hmm. My family takes care of me. Oh, because they take care of you. Very good. By having the power. Power, that's a good word, yes. Because they help. They help, very good. Their jobs. Their jobs? What about their jobs makes them important? Like they have different roles. Different roles, very good. These are all good answers. Any more? All right, I think, oh, well, oh, that's right. So now we've talked about important people. Can you think of any people that aren't very important? Yes. Any ideas? Thieves. Thieves. Not very important. I would mostly agree with that. Murderers. Who's that? Murderers. Murderers. Uh -huh. Bank robbers. Bank robbers. Ooh, we've got a theme going here. <laughs> Anyone else? What makes someone not important? So, hmm? Beggar, beggars. Okay, beggars are not important. Now think a little harder again. Why are they not important? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes they steal stuff. Stealing stuff is not good. Yep. They steal. They steal, that's right. That is not a good thing, yep. Some of them kill. Some of them kill, if we're thinking murderers, yes. These are all very good answers. And I think you guys have helped me a lot. I appreciate it. Do you have an idea? So, all these nice, lovely cookies we'll get later on. <laughs> oh, that was mean. You guys, look, I'm going to ask you to come back up afterwards, and then you'll get, I'll, I'll get a cookie, okay? Is that okay? All right, have a seat. We'll have a quick talk, and then I'll call you back up. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. All right, yes, that was worth an applaud. Thank you, guys.
All right. All through the Old Testament, we read about the glory of God. We read about kings like David and Solomon, Nebuchadnezzar. We read about prophets, Moses, Isaiah, and Elijah, the tabernacle, and the temple. Did you know that it took around eight tons of gold, silver, and bronze to build the tabernacle? That amazed me, just a little tent. It took eight tons of these metals. The Old Testament is chock full of God's majesty and important people doing important things. But as I was reading and thinking about what to talk about this morning, I wanted to look at the Christmas story, and I wanted to see if we could see some of God's character in it, some of his nature. And it struck me how Christmas doesn't have any of this glory and important people in it. All the kings, all the prophets, where'd we go? All the gold and all the glory, they're all replaced by shepherds, young pregnant girls, some animal troughs. So what happened? What is it that changed? Did God's nature change? When we went from Malachi to Matthew, what was it that happened? Absolutely not. God doesn't change. We know that. It's one of his characters, character traits. Um, James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God does not change. So then what do we make of it? Why do things seem to change so dramatically? All right, to understand this change, we have to look a little bit closer at some of those important people that are in the Old Testament. Moses, who was a prophet and leader, David was a king, Gideon, he was a warrior, and Esther was a beautiful queen. These are some of the more prominent characters that God used during the Old Testament times. They were all very important people. He used each of them in very different and very dramatic ways. And they're all marked by traits that we see as important, as the kids reminded us. Moses was known for his leadership. Even today, Moses is the most important person in the Jewish faith. David was known for what? For his royalty. Gideon was a powerful warrior. And Esther was well known for her beauty. Leadership, power, and strength, status, and beauty. These are all things that we think make someone important, right? At very least, they're traits that the world sees as important. But why do these godly people still seem so different from Jesus? Well, they are and they aren't. To understand what I mean, we have to look deeper more than what they, who they were, no, at what they were, and more at who they were. We have to look at what their characters were like, not just their positions. Then I think we'll be able to see the common thread that runs between them. One of the well-known stories that we've all heard about, Moses in front of the burning bush, is how he kept giving God reasons why he wasn't the one God should send him to Pharaoh. He was a very timid guy. But the Bible calls him humble. 
Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, which would have been on the screen. Now I'll read it for you. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now that's quite the verse. That's a verse you can be proud of, eh? But don't you know? <laughs> David was the greatest king besides Jesus that Israel has ever had. He's led many battles and brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, but he also committed adultery with one of his soldiers' wives. And then, to top it, off, top it all off, conspired to have that soldier killed. David had his flaws as well, but he always repented and humbled himself before God. Maybe that's why David was called a man after God's own heart. Gideon, if you remember Gideon, he was asked by God to defeat Israel's enemies. But Gideon knew that he wasn't worthy for such a task. This is what he says back to God. He says, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. Gideon was no one important, but he was humble. And Esther, likewise, came from a Jewish family in exile. But God used her to save the entire nation, exiled nation of Israel from genocide. All these people that God used mightily were very humble people. This seems to be the most common character trait between all of them that allowed God to use them. God's Word tells us that He values this humility. In 1 Peter 5.5 we read, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble. They were all people who were humble before God, and then God gave them the position of power or riches or what have you. It's the humbleness of his servants that God really values. He doesn't care about the power or the wealth, but he honors a contrite spirit. So now when Jesus came, years later, he came not to be a king, although that is his title. He didn't come as a warrior, although the next time Jesus comes, it will be with the sword. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came as a servant. He came as a servant of God, and he came as a servant to mankind. This is the thread that connects the Old Testament to the New. It is God's value of humility. We've already read this verse a couple times this morning, and it fits exactly with what I am trying to say this morning. Philippians 2, verse 6. This is talking about Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon, the, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's that word again, humble. You see, God's nature hadn't suddenly changed. In Jesus, it had actually been magnified or perfected. If God himself is going to assume a humble state, then you can be pretty sure he's going to do it right. And that's why Jesus' mother was a young girl of humble spirit. 
That's why the only people who were invited to his birth were shepherds. Shepherds were on the lowest, were on the lowest rung of society, who the world sees as the least important. They were considered unclean and couldn't even come into the temple. But they were the only ones that God seemed fit, saw as fit, to invite to his son's birth. That's why there was no crib or cradle, but there was an animal trough. It couldn't have been more opposite of what the world was expecting the Messiah to be like. Jesus came from glory with the Father, he had every right to put that glory on display for everyone to see, but he chose to humble himself. And for 33 years, Jesus lived a simple, humble life. He obeyed his parents. He obeyed God. Not once did he sin. Jesus lived the perfect life of humility, serving and healing others. But God's plan for Jesus wasn't finished with that. He wasn't finished with his humbling. God's plan included Jesus' death. And this was something, from what I read, even Jesus was reluctant to do. We read in Matthew, chapter 26, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Lucky for us, with Jesus' perfect humility comes perfect obedience to God, and Jesus obeyed his Father right to his death on that cross. His Father did not take that cup from him. And in Jesus' last hours before that cross, just before he prayed this prayer, Jesus was gathering with all of his disciples at what we call the Last Supper. And halfway through the meal, get this, the disciples start to bicker and fight. And what are they bickering and fighting about? <laughs> They're bickering and fighting over who is the greatest disciple. They're in the presence of Jesus. I don't know how on earth you can come in the presence of Jesus and start to argue about who's the best, but they manage to get there. Now, three years, Jesus has been with these disciples, and I imagine to any teacher who spent that amount of time with their students, to see them miss the mark so spectacularly must have been very discouraging at the least. But we do have to remember that these 12 guys, they were just fallen men, prone to the same weaknesses that we are. I can't judge them too harshly since I know my own heart can easily fall victim to pride as well. But it is nice to see that I'm in such good company, right? <laughs> I mean, if Jesus' disciples struggled with pride, then can I? Unfortunately, it's not the disciples we're trying to impress. Jesus alone is the one that we should be measuring ourselves against. And Jesus doesn't let them off the hook here either. He has one final lesson to teach them before he's taken away to be crucified. These are Jesus' last moments with them 
And what does he do? Now, just like the lowly shepherds, the bottom rung of society, were invited to his birth, Jesus again takes the lowest rung that he can find, and he takes the role of a slave. If you remember the story, it was at this point Jesus removed his outer garments. He knelt down and began to wash his disciples' feet. Now, you have to remember, in Jewish and Middle Eastern culture, the feet are considered to be the dirtiest, most offensive part of the body. And thus, washing the feet was a job that was reserved for servants and slaves. And this was the role that Jesus voluntarily assumed when he began to wash his disciples' feet. And the disciples knew this. It's why Peter was so appalled when Jesus came to wash his feet. All right, think back to the story. When Jesus gets to Peter, Peter says to him, never shall you wash my feet. To which Jesus replies, Peter, if I do not wash you, then you have no part with me. Oh, says Peter. In that case, here, wash the rest of me as well. Now, I really, I really like Peter. Um, I can relate to a lot of the things he says and does, especially when he kind of messes things up like that. Um, but when Jesus finished washing their feet, he tells them, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, do you know what I have done for you? This is in John chapter 13, if you're curious. Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. The lesson is as clear as day, but profoundly difficult to put into practice. Jesus put himself on the lowest rung of society with slaves. And then he tells us, we've got to be lower than that. There is no job or service to a fellow Christian that we should not be willing to do. That's the lesson of what Jesus was telling us. None of us is as great as Jesus, and if he was willing to take the role of a slave, then what excuse does that give the rest of us? I know as well as you do how difficult this is to put into practice. When there comes a time when we should serve or when we should put someone else's needs before our own, our pride always seems to want to put ourselves first. I'm as guilty as this as the next one. And I think this will be a struggle for probably all of us until we can cast off this mortal body. But this was more than just a nice thought that Jesus had. This is his last command before he was dragged off before Pilate to be crucified. It's how we should live every day of our lives, to live with the knowledge that everybody around us is more important than ourselves. And after Jesus was arrested, he did the most important thing that anyone has ever done. He obeyed his God all the way to the cross where he was killed. And because all of us have sinned against God, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves from the punishment that's due us. We would be stuck. We'd be prisoners of Satan. 
But because Jesus never sinned and because he was the Son of God, he was able to pay that debt that we couldn't, saving us from an eternity with Satan so that we could be forever with God. And to God and for us, that's pretty important. So in conclusion, we started this message thinking about what it is that makes somebody important. The kids gave us some great examples of what uh, the world thinks makes someone important. And as we consider the Christmas story and the Easter story and everything in between, we can't help but notice that Jesus was none of these things. Because what God's th God thinks is important is not what we think is important. God looks at our hearts, and what he sees as important are things like love, joy, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and you all know it, self-control. And as we've seen this morning, humbleness. So from Jesus' birth with shepherds and cows, all the way to his death, punished as a criminal, Jesus showed us what humility really is. And as you all head out to celebrate Christmas, keep this in mind, and may we all remember that no servant is greater than his master. All right, let's just pray. Thank you for listening to God's Word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church or subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.